0: Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at
1: the Back of the Range. And here's your host, Ben
0: Adelberg. And once again, welcome to the Back of the Range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 159. My guest on this episode is Buddy Alexander, former National Championship winning coach, at the University of Florida. Where do I start with all of his accomplishments? Well, not only was the incredible coach, as I said, national championships, SEC coach of the year, conference championships, but he was quite the player as well. See, Buddy Alexander won the 1986 US Amateur Championship, really one of the last mid-ams to win the Havemeyer trophy. He played Walker Cup with Billy Andrade and Billy Mayfair, played the Eisenhower trophy and played in over 40 USGA events. We spoke about many fascinating topics. You know, his father played on tour and was a Ryder cupper. We chatted about his experience playing in the masters paired with Jack Nicholas in 1987. And we also spoke about his commandments that he gently communicated to his players at the university of Florida, really his philosophy on the game. And this is fantastic information for even the casual golfer It will definitely help you enjoy your game a lot more. Special thanks to Nick Gillum, one of Coach Alexander's former players. He won the individual championship in 2001 when the University of Florida won the team championship. So Nick helped make this thing happen. He's a big supporter of the podcast and a former guest. So thank you to Nick. Don't forget, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, Instagram. You can find every single episode at thebackoftherange.com. There is more merch on the way. And again, there's more surprises as well. Let's get right into this episode. Coach Alexander, thanks so much for joining me at the back of the range. How are you?
1: Well, thank you. I'm, I'm quite well and uh, probably could use a little more time on the range, but uh, happy to be a part of the, uh, the program tonight.
0: see, I'm in a studio with a microphone in front of me and just kind of looking at notes and seeing where this conversation is going to go. But you just told me before we started recording that you are sitting on your back porch with a, uh, a frosty adult beverage in your hand. Where does a, um, you know, a national championship coach, where are you hanging your hat these days now that you're enjoying? A, are, is this retirement golf you're playing? I don't think you're playing retirement golf. You're playing some serious competitive golf at some point. But what, uh, what's your setup right now as far as where you're playing, what you're doing uh, in, in, your, in your game?
1: Well, I live in
0: Auburn, Alabama. Uh,
1: we moved up here about <clears throat> four years ago. My my wife works for the university, and um, I still dabble a little bit in a consulting business that I own. Mostly, I mentor junior golfers and help them find the right college. Sure, uh, that they that they want to uh, continue to play golf for. Um, I do some audits where I go to. Uh, various programs and uh, i meet with the coach for a day at the school i can also do it uh, over the phone um and just try to help them improve their program um the the, another thing i i'd I'd like to do more of is is do some coaching searches but athletic directors for some reason think they're smarter than (laughs) than i am and they can do it by themselves and um I haven't, I've done a couple of those and I really enjoy them and, and they're very inexpensive, but, um, those are the, the three primary things that I do in my little consulting business. But for the most part, I am uh, certainly what I would call semi-retired. Um, I play, uh, I haven't played a whole lot of golf tournaments this year cause there haven't been any to play in, yeah. but I've, I've played in the, in the U S uh, senior amateur every year that I've lived up here. Uh, I play in the Alabama Golf Association events, the Senior Am. Uh, I played in the four ball. I played in the mid Am. Um, my wife uh, ha- has decided that we need to play in the mixed team championship oh, in boy. September. Oh boy! Oh boy! Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yep.
0: you uh, you think you face pressure being uh, you know playing Walker Cup and 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 you haven't faced any pressure yet like this. I mean, you better get your game ready for this.
1: Oh, that's far bigger than the Walker cup or U S open or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, we've, we've we play,
1: there's a Thursday night scramble, which we're not playing this week, but we play in that together all the time. And she calls, she calls those regular tour events. The mixed team state championship is a major, right? Exactly. Okay. Exactly.
0: All right. So really you're, you, I mean, you're looking to add to your resume. I mean, the other stuff, I mean, there's, there's just stuff on here that, you know, Eisenhower trophy and that, that's just, but that's going to be low on the list. If you can, you know, snag a mixed, uh, a mixed championship. Well, I don't.
1: Yeah. I mean, she's a legit, uh, 15 handicapper. She's not too bad. And, uh, uh, I don't know what the, uh, I don't know exactly what the format is. I think it's, I think it's a, a modified, uh, alternate shots where you take the best drive and then play in from there. We, we actually won the, uh, mixed club championship, uh, two years in a row. So, uh, we've got some experience and, you know, so far I haven't been kicked out of the house, so I'm doing all right.
0: (laughs) This is a, this is a unique one. Well, you definitely have the pedigree for, for obviously on the golf course. And I think that's fascinating with your, Uh, consulting and trying to shape junior golf and then also trying to shape programs and uh, you've won a few uh, coach of the year awards in the SEC in your day and uh, whether it be at LSU or or at the University of Florida um, you know we can't get into every single one of your accomplishments but for listeners that may not be familiar you had a a great amateur career and then once you got into coaching uh, you know two national championships with the University of Florida and Uh, you know uh, guided several players from the collegiate ranks to the pga tour but as i always like to do when i have these conversations with with great guests like yourself i I like going back to the beginning a little bit of how you got into the game and maybe learn a little bit more about how you got shaped uh, to become a a great player and also a coach so tell me a little bit about uh, when you started playing what was your introduction to the game of golf
1: well my father played the tour and um he made a couple of Ryder cup teams and he won uh, several tour events and in 1950 before I was born, uh, he was in an airplane accident in which he was the uh, only survivor. It was a smaller plane with, with four people on there. Uh, But uh, you know, essentially he went to um, he was in the hospital for about seven months. Very lucky to live. He, He later won the Hogan award. Um, you know, which is the, the golf award for people who have come overcome, uh, injury and, uh, or illness or what have you, Yeah, of course. Uh, and, and, um, so he was unable to play professionally after that accident. Uh, and that was in, that was in 1950. He was only 31, um, and well on his way to being a, a really terrific player and not that he wasn't a terrific player, but, you know, I mean, he was in the peak of his, of his career, but um, he took a job as the golf professional at Lakewood Country Club in St. Petersburg, which is now called St. Petersburg Country Club. Um, and I grew up on the eighth tee. And, um, you know, I would get on my bicycle and I could ride down to the golf course and play and practice as much as I wanted. Um, you know, he put me to work cleaning clubs and shagging balls. And uh, there was a baseball field behind the club and a, and a, uh, that's where my football practice was, uh, you know, it was a, it was a city park that was right behind the, the clubhouse.
0: Right.
1: So we played baseball and we played basketball and we played football and we played golf and we rode our bikes forever and ever. And my dog followed me around and um, <laughs> I did a little bit, bit of everything until, Oh, I guess my junior year of high school, I started to get a little bit more serious about golf and, um, and I played okay on the on the state level. I won the city tournament three years in a row. And and uh, and I was sort of – I was recruited a little bit by Florida and Florida State, but nothing to be – you know, nothing, nothing crazy. Um, and I ended up going to Georgia Southern. Yeah. And uh, I liked the small school atmosphere. I liked the coach. Uh, I liked the golf course that we got to play all the time. It was a nice little club. Forest Heights Country Club in Statesboro, Georgia. And it was, um, I don't know. It was just really different from growing up in St. Pete. And I was interested in that. And I went there and and got better and better and, and, um, ended up making the all america team, um, uh, second and third team, I think my last couple of years. And then, um, I, uh, one, I was kind of waiting for the 77 Walker cup team. And so I got a job at Hilton head. I lived in Hilton head for a year as a, just a a cart boy. Um, that was a fun time. You know, I was making about, I don't know, I was probably making a hundred dollars a week in my, in my salary. Um, and I was probably making about $50 in tips. And uh, I was making about $50 a week gambling because uh, all the pros on the island thought they could play pretty good and they really weren't that good. <laughs> okay. um, and so, uh, you know, I had a little change in my pocket and not a whole lot of responsibility. Um, and we had, uh, we had been pretty good at Georgia Southern. We went to the NCAA tournament. Uh, at, well, eventually we ended up going to the NCAA tournament finals 11 years in a row and um, I was a part of a lot of those, um, but we were we were really good my uh, junior and senior year, and uh, the year after I left, they were pretty good, and as a result, uh, Jesse Haddock, the old golf coach from Wake Forest, yeah, um, went to Oral Roberts. He got a big contract to go out to Oral Roberts, and uh, my coach got the job at Wake Forest, and this was late in the summer, and I had always told him that if I didn't play the tour that I wanted to coach golf because I knew I didn't want to be a club prop. Okay. And he called me up and he said, Hey, they need a coach for this coming fall. And, you know, if you'll go to graduate school, um, you know, you can, they'll, they'll give you a graduate assistance position and you can be the interim coach. And that's how I got into coaching. Um, so I did that for a year. We got to the NCAA finals, um, and it was it was a pretty good gig, and um, but I told them I said you know I'm not going to do it for graduate assistant money again. Right. And, right, right. And so they made me the only full time faculty member that didn't have a master's degree, and the agreement was I had to continue to work toward my master's degree, which I did, and um, ended up staying for four years before I turned pro and tried to play professionally at age
0: 27. Nice. Nice. Um.
1: And I had some success on the mini-tours, and, you know, there was no Corn Ferry tour back then. Um, there was no Latin American tour. There was no Canadian tour. You just you were either on the tour or you were a mini-tour guy. Right. And, right. Um, you know, we had a lot of really good mini-tour players, Russ Cochran and Paul Azinger and Joey Sindelar and uh, Dick Mast uh, was, was one that I recall was really good. Um, just, you know, Larry Rinker. I mean, I could go on and on. Sure. Bob Bob Tway played down there a little bit. Um, there were a whole bunch of guys that played down there when I played and, um, but I just wasn't quite good enough. So after a couple of years, I decided that, you know, the coaching thing was something that was appealing to me. And, uh, I applied for the job in the summer of 82 at, um, at LSU and they hired me and, uh, I was there for five years. And then, uh, for a brief six months, I was in Cleveland, Ohio as a sports <laughs> management with, uh, IMG, which was the largest sports management company in the world at the time. And, um, I was a little chilly in Cleveland for a Florida boy. Sure. Uh, and the Florida job became available and i applied for that and i was there for 27 years
0: before we yeah and i and i appreciate you laying out just kind of the scope and the trajectory of, of you know when you started playing and then ultimately to when you uh, ended up at florida as the coach um i gotta be honest with you and, and this is kind of a little transparency for the listeners there are you know things that i know about your um upbringing and your um you know, your trajectory that I know these stories, but maybe the listeners don't know the story. So if, if you would entertain us, could you please tell the story of how your father was able to play Ryder cup after he was in his accident?
1: Yeah. He, the, uh, the accident was in September and, um, somewhere, I mean, they ended up, he had like a, a 22 surgeries of some sort or another. And his, um, you know, his, <laughs> They had a lot, they did a lot of skin grafting off of his, off of his butt. Um, in fact, we used to call him Madras butt because he looked like a pair of the, those old Madras pants that had, you know, the patches on them. Um,
0: I should say he used to call himself Madras okay. butt. You know? Yeah. That's kind of a hard uh, nickname for someone else to give you. You got to kind of own he, that yourself. Yeah.
1: And, um, you know, he used to refer to the accident as before years or after years, because the the fringes of his ears were burned so badly that he, he basically, he barely had enough ear to hang his glasses on, oh, wow. but, um, you know, one of the surgeries they got, they got to a point where they were going to amputate his, his ring and his little fingers, uh, on both hands. And, you know, he said like, you know, if you do that, I'll never play golf again. And he talked to the doctor and he, he talked him into, uh, freezing, uh, the, the last knuckle and the second to last knuckle on the little fingers and the last knuckle on the ring fingers so that they were permanently, uh, you know, bent or half closed, but he could still clamp down on a club. And that's, that's what they did. And then, um, you know, in April, they allowed him to, he would have been you know, invited to the masters. Uh, they let him sit between the 12th fairway, the 12th green and the 13th tee so all the players could come by and say hello to him, you know, on their way between the two. Wow. And by, by June, he was playing, um, you know, he started to play a little golf again. The Ryder cup matches were in late September and they were at Pinehurst, which were, which was his favorite course in the world. Cause he, he grew up in, in North Carolina and he actually won the, uh, North, North South in 41. But, um, he, uh, he started practicing and he needed to go out and make a couple of cuts or play in a couple of tournaments to get a couple more Ryder Cup points, which he did. And because basically he made the team on what he had done in in '50 alone, he was right. I think he was I think he was third leading money winner in 1950 at the time of the accident. Um, he was fifth leading money winner in '48 and 17th money winner in '49. He, he he blames that on his on on my mom because that's when they got married. <laughs> okay. but, um, Anyway, he earned a couple points and, uh, made the team and got to play in the Ryder cup matches in September of 51.
0: Wow. Incredible. That's uh, very, very deserving of that, uh, that Hogan comeback, uh, award. That's uh, that's incredible. Um, well, thank you for sharing that one. Cause I wanted to make sure that we, we fit that in. Cause I just think that's a great story. You, um, so, so you, you ran me through basically your, your coaching start. Um, and, and you continued to play while you were coaching. And, and obviously, the, the crowning achievement, I would imagine, of your playing career is winning the 1986 U.S. Amateur Championship. And this is, you're around the age of, I guess, what, about 32, 33 years old? You're still at LSU. And actually, that was a great year you had. You guys won the SEC that year.
1: Yeah, that was a good year. Um, I was 33. And, um, you know, after you after you played professional golf and hoped to play the tour and that was your dream, um, you know, I didn't really have a desire to play a lot of golf. I jumped into the, into the coaching thing in 82 and, and 83, uh, you know, kind of uh, head first. And I, I probably played 10 rounds of golf that year. Um, but when the kids went home after the NCAA tournament, I'm sitting around there and I don't have anything to do. So I started playing a little bit and they had to, they had a, a, a Louisiana Open, which was a, a closed Open. You had to be a resident of the state. And they had a pretty decent um, purse. You know, like, you know, I, I think it was like 10000 for first and 5000 for second. And I was making $25,000 a year coaching men and women. And um, I entered the, the Louisiana Open and started practicing in earnest a little bit. and. Sure. Um, And it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I, I think I finished third and, you know, won, won a couple thousand dollars. But, you know, uh, it was it was fun. And I didn't I didn't, you know, golf wasn't fun. You know, when you're getting beat up trying yeah. to play professional golf toward the end and you realize that your dreams not going to come true, it's not really a whole lot of fun. That's my dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> have a, a little interference here from a tree, a treeing and
0: Walker coonhound
1: who can make a lot of noise. <laughs> You're
0: fine. Uh, You're fine.
1: But uh, anyway, uh, I, I, uh, I played pretty good and I, I enjoyed it. And so I looked into getting into the PGA and there was no way to do it. Um, as a golf coach back then, you now can be a pro and accumulate uh, points toward your PGA uh, apprenticeship and ultimately your, your, your membership. But, um, I didn't, I I didn't have that opportunity back then. And I'd always loved amateur golf. And I thought, well, you know, Hey, i get my amateur status back and, you know, maybe I'll play in some member guests or, you know, just whatever, but there's no sense in being a pro if I can't make any money at it. And, um, so I got my amateur status back and, uh, they, they whammed me for three years back then. It was, that was the, that was the longest, uh, probationary period. Um, and it was based on how much money you won and how many tour events you you played in. And right. I go like, well, damn, I didn't win a whole lot of money <laughs> and I, and I didn't play in a whole lot of tour events. I played about four or five of them, but I, you know, and I snuck in on a Monday qualifier, but sure. I, Anyway, they gave me the, 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 whole enchilada of three years. And, um, so I got my amateur status back. Um, my last professional violation, if you will, would have been that Louisiana Open in the summer of 83. And so I got my, uh, I got my amateur status back in June of the end of June, uh, 86. And then I won the U S amateur in, uh, at the end of August and and the same summer.
0: Yeah. Picked it up at Shoal Creek. What now we were, I I was just looking at past us amateur champions and it's, it's you in 86. And then I believe it's, it's Mitch Vogus in 91, John Harrison, 93. And that's basically the end of mid-ams, you know, guys that are, you know, about 25, 30 years old and up. That's pretty much the end of, of mid-ams winning the USAM. You know, 94 started Tigers three-peat, and then they're off to the races with a lot of college kids. I mean, sitting back and thinking about it, did it seem like such an unlikely thing, or, or you were out of your element around all these college kids when you were playing? Because I would imagine for, for guys that are in their mid-30s now at a US amateur, you know, this year's going to be different since so there's no qualifying. You know, there's a handful of uh, you know, mid-amateurs that are going to be there, basically you know maybe it's based on their on their on their wagger but for the most part it's based on what they've done in u.s mid-ams in the last you know one two or three years but looking back on it did it seem like such an you know anomaly for a for a 32 33 year old to be contest or contending for a u.s amateur
1: no not at all um back then there were a lot of of really good mid-amateur players um you know bob lewis and uh bill leffler and jay siegel were and i were the four were the four mid amateurs you know now they they made a rule for a while where you had to have at least two now i think they have to have at least one i mean we had four guys that were going to the northeast amateur and the u.s amateur i mean jay siegel won the the u.s amateur and then you know, like 82 and 83 back to back yep um and there were guys like Jerry Corville and, uh, buddy Marucci. And I mean, the list is, is, is lengthy. How many guys that we had that were very, very competitive when we went to play in the Porter cup and the sunny Hannah and the Northeast and, um, the Western amateur and so on and so forth. And there's a good reason for it. Uh, and, and the, the reason is, is equipment. And, um, Uh, you know, I'm not going to get on my soapbox about how far guys are hitting it. I'm going to take a little different route in, in, in the eighties as tour players, you basically peaked in, in, and really didn't even get really good at it until you were in your thirties. Unless, unless your name was, was Crenshaw or I'm not, I'm not going to say that the beans and the Cokes and the, uh, of the world weren't pretty good in their, in their twenties, but they were probably at their best in their early thirties. Right. And you, you know, first of all, you're playing with a, a of spinny ball. You're, you're playing with, without square grooves. So you have grooves that are V shaped and it took a long time to learn how not to hit flyers or, or how to control flyers or know when they were coming. Right. Uh You know, when the square groove came along, the younger, more inexperienced players all of a sudden didn't, didn't have to worry about those things. Um, and, uh, you were playing with wooden clubs that had bulge and roll. And when you hit the ball on the toe, it was either, it it would either be a snap hook or it would go so far into right field. You couldn't find it. Um, if you hit it in the heel, it might go between your legs. Uh, you know, and, and if you, if you hit it on the, on the top, it, 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 it just jumps straight up in the air and you go about 185 yards. Uh, if you hit it on the bottom, it would carry about a hundred yards and, you know, it wouldn't go anywhere. So the, the bottom line is it took a little longer to become a, a really good player and play the tour in the, in the eighties and the seventies, even before that, um, And so uh, consequently, you had a lot of, a lot of mid-am guys in their thirties, even in their forties. I I mean, you know, Bob Lewis lost in the finals of the U S amateur to Hal Sutton. So, uh, and that was, I think in 1980 or something. And, and then, like I said, Jay Siegel won twice in the eighties. And so when I came along and won in 86, it was, it was no shocker, um, and 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 I don't think I'd ever, I, and I, I'm I'm willing to admit this. I don't think I would have ever won the U S amateur if I had not played professional golf. You know, I, 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 I gig the USGA a little bit about giving me three years back then, but in reality, I, you know, I learned so much and became a, so much of a better player uh, because of the experiences that I had as a, a professional golfer that I never would have won the US am without it. And, and I was the first, um, Reinstated amateur to ever win the US Amateur. Yeah, uh, and then, like you said, Mitch Voges came along shortly thereafter in '91, and John Harrison '93, and then that's been the end of it. And you know, as as I said earlier, you know, they're they're searching for and dying to have uh, one or two mid amateurs on the team, uh, whereas you know, back in the '80s, it was it was common, very common. Or a Walker Cup team to have uh you know four four mid amateurs on the team. And they and they got on there without any question at all about whether or not they were deserving or not. They they right.
0: are in their way on there. And it was
1: it was an easy pick for the for the selection committee in my opinion, in most cases.
0: Yeah, so do you think and, and you probably have already answered this, but do you think that now the reason we're not seeing more mid-ams at a US amateur is it is it just because the college kids are playing so much more and have so many more tournaments and time to play? Or is it that the quality of the mid ams is just we're it's just not at the level it was in, in the in the mid eighties? I mean, have you thought maybe how to potentially explain why there's not more mid ams in, in that are contesting year after year in, in, or I mean they're contesting, but they're not they haven't popped over and, and picked up a victory.
1: I think it's a little bit of everything. Okay, I think, I, I think the, uh, you know, it, like I said, I think equipment has continued to make the, the game easier for younger players. Right. Um, I think that the uh, AJGA has done a great job of providing an opportunity for juniors to play a lot of uh, uh, events before they go to college. And then after the AJGA, you've got, Southeastern Junior Golf Tour and many other uh, junior tours. Uh, the Florida State Golf Association has their own Florida Junior Tour. Um, you know, they, you got opportunities to compete and play. Uh, you couple that with the fact that uh, technology has made it a little bit easier. And now kids are realizing that, hey, I can get bigger and stronger and longer by going to the gym. And businessmen, don't have the time to do that so they can't they they, they don't they might outsmart them a little bit but sure. they're not gonna. they're not going to make up the difference between the athleticism that our good young college players have and their strength that they have and the, you know the opportunity that they had when they were you know junior golfers um you know you go to you, you go to a, a golf program now the coaches are way better. I mean, you know, I was one of the first coaches that that you know even had a, a real live playing resume. Um, and so, um, you know, we used to refer to a lot of guys as just a bunch of old bus drivers. Bus drivers. I knew exactly
0: and, where you were going with that. And,
1: and and you know now you go if you come to Auburn uh, uh, and and you play for Nick Kleinert, you play for a guy that played college golf at a high, high level and, um, play professional golf. And he knows what he's talking about. And same with JC Deacon at Florida and same with, you know, almost every program now has a, a, a real live golf coach, you know, as opposed to somebody that, you know, they just pulled out of the athletic department to uh, drive the van and hand out the the title
0: Yeah, I was, you know, just like you were saying, I was thinking about asking you basically how much of an advantage you had by by being a being a player. You're you're, you're a coach, but obviously you can go out with your players and and you can, you know, go toe to toe with them, you know, take, you know, beat them in practice sessions and I'm guessing that that just gets so much more respect. And you you, you demand their respect when you're able to beat them on the golf course.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, when, you know, you talk about 886, uh, that winter, uh, when the kids came back from, from uh, Christmas break, I played in every qualifying round with David Toms and Rob McNamara, who was player of the year in the SEC that year, and Emlyn Aubrey and Bob Friend and, you know, all these guys that were on my team who could, who, you know, and Emlyn and Bob ultimately played the tour uh, themselves a little bit. And I'm playing qualifying rounds with them and I'm playing, you know, I'm I'm as good as they are. I mean, I know I'm as good as they are. And, and, and I'm older than they are. So when I have some advice and, and I want to try to get a point across to them uh, they're, they're certainly going to be a whole lot more, apt to listen to that than they are their ten handicap father right. or 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 a coach that might not even be a ten handicap.
0: There, there you go, there you go. Well, I, I want to ask you a couple of coaching questions, but I can't skip over two of the perks of being a U.S. amateur champion. Uh, one of them, obviously, we've we've kind of uh, talked around, is the fact that you're on the '87 Walker Cup team that goes over to Sunningdale and just lays uh, lays the wood, so to speak, to, to the I team. Uh, your, your victory gosh i think it's 16 yeah 16 and a half to seven and a half over at sunningdale i mean this thing was over after the first day practically but you know you had some kids on that team you had you had andre you had chris kite who you beat in the final at the usam and you had lenny matisse but you had some like you were saying earlier you had some men on that team that wasn't just a you know college showcase exhibition you had some you had some men you had sigel you had lewis you had loffler um how was the dynamic between, between the older crew and the younger crew, so to speak, on the U.S. team?
1: Oh, it was great. There were no issues at all. I mean, we, we all got along. And, in fact, the, the World Cup team, the Eisenhower Cup team, yeah. in, in the fall of, of 86, had three mid-amps. And it was, it was Siegel, Lewis, myself, and Billy Andre. And Billy was great, you know. He was like having a little a little kid along with us.
0: Get the, and, get, um, get the luggage, Billy. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah.
1: And Bill Campbell was our captain, and uh, we didn't win. We lost by a couple shots to Canada. Uh, they played great, and we, we played we played pretty good. I played okay there as well. Um, but Billy and I went to Augusta to play a couple practice rounds in November after school was out, and uh, or maybe during Thanksgiving or. Or or something, but you know, and, and I love Billy, and I and I wanted, I wanted to play with Billy, and and I the captain of our Walker Cup team was Fred Ridley, yep. and you know Fred and I have known each other since we were about twelve years old playing junior golf in Florida, and um, I told him I said man I'd, I'd love to play with Billy man we just went to Augusta we had a great time and 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 Fred leaned on me a little bit uh, asking me about different guys on the team because obviously I knew the college players sure. Um, and we get to, uh, we get to Sunningdale and, um, I had told him earlier that the best player on the team was Billy Mayfair and Billy, uh, had not yet won the U S amateur in 87, uh, down at Jupiter Hills, but he was on that team. And I told, I told Fred, I go, Fred, the best player on the team is Billy Mayfair. And, you know, Billy Andre's a pretty close second. And then you got us old guys and, and and the rest of the guys are good players too. And so on and so forth. And, and he said, uh, okay. And so we get to Sunnydale and we're getting ready to play our first, our first practice round, which was always alternate shots because we didn't ever play alternate shots.
0: Right. Right.
1: And so we had to pr- practice a little alternate shots. And, uh, first, first day he goes, okay, I got Alexander and Mayfair playing against, Sigel and um Andre. I go like, all right, well, he didn't give me the guy I wanted, but he gave me the best player on the team. I'll take it. Okay. And uh, you know, Billy went to Wake Forest, Jay Sigel went to Wake Forest. So we went out there and we played and we had a good match. I don't I I don't even know if, who won, but it was one up or or even or something, you know. So the next day he switched and I had Billy Andre as a partner and and Sigel had Mayfair and it did, it just didn't work. You know, like Billy was in my bag all day long trying to tell me how to play shots.
0: And and I'm like,
1: man, I don't want that. And I love Billy and I kid him about it now. But, um, you know, we, uh, we, we got hammered. And so we ended up, obviously I played with Mayfair and that was the right call. Fred made a great call there and and did a great job all week. But, but, you know, you know, when you're, first of all, I'm 30, I'm 34 years old at that time. Now, Jay, you know, Jay was very laid back and a little bit older and Lewis w- was even older than Jay. Maybe, I don't know, but, and, and, you know, Louie was really hyper and, you know, he was running around all the time, you know, just getting into everything. And, uh, the, but the, the, and, and Le- Leffler was a great guy too. And I had known Leffler, he played at Arizona state. I had known him for a long time. He, he won the mid am, you know, that year and, um, it was just, it was great. We, we had a good time and the, the young guys would ask, you know, Siegel and Lewis, most of the questions, cause they had played on previous Walker cup teams right. and World cup teams. And, um, but it was, you know, we were ready to rock and roll. Fred did a great job. Um, actually Billy and I played Cullen Montgomery and Graham Shaw in yes. the first match. Yes, you did. And, and, um, we, we hammered them pretty good. Um, We got there, and um, you know, we're trying to figure out who should go off the odd-numbered holes and who should go off the even-numbered holes. And the caddy goes, "Well, typically the stronger, because they play those that game all the time over there." And they go, "Like, typically the stronger player should probably play off the odd-numbered holes." And and I go, "Like, okay, that's you, Billy. Good, you're on the odd." (laughs) And so we got to the first tee. We're going to hit the first shot in the Walker Cup matches. And Billy's got the tee, and, you know, we're standing there, nervous as hell, about to play, and he walks over and he goes, now I know why you wanted me to play the odd number There you go, yeah. (laughs) Because he had to go first.
0: It is so funny because I've spoken to, I think, oh, gosh, at least over two dozen Walker Cuppers, and whenever this part of – whenever this comes up in conversation, it's hysterical because you guys are the ten best amateurs in the country. You are chosen to represent the country – and it literally comes down to that tea box. Everyone's like, "I'm not it. You're it. I'm not hitting it. You, no, oh, no, you do it. Oh, you. It's hysterical. <laughs> it's like guys are the world beaters, the U.S. amateur champions, mid-am champs, and you turn into into like seventh graders. They're like, I'm not, I'm not going to ask her to dance. You ask. I'm not talking to her. Oh yeah,
1: that's exactly that's exactly what it's like. You're- <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? If you talk
0: to Ryder Cup players, oh, the you're a hundred percent right. It could be the exact same thing for Ryder Cup, Presidents Cup, anything. It's just it's just funny that at that level, it still exists. It's still reminiscent of the the weekend hacker that has to hit a shot in front of his buddies on a Saturday right. morning. It's great. That's what's so great about it. So you mentioned Fred Ridley. Um, you know what he does right now, right? He's got a job at that club in Georgia, right? Who? Really? Fred Ridley. Who huh? uh, this Ridley? Uh, he yeah he, yeah. He's in charge of yeah, tic- he's in charge of tickets at Augusta National, I think. <laughs> yeah yeah. He's so, in
1: charge of a whole lot more than tickets. Okay, Merch- yeah. merchandising
0: That's or something. I don't know. He makes he makes the uh, he makes the pimento cheese. He does something. Anyway, what I'm getting at is because of your U.S. Amateur win, um, I, you know I'm not sure how many people know about the fact that U.S. Amateur champions for a very long time. I think it ended maybe 10 years ago, somewhere in that. Horde Harden range, I believe, is when it ended when he was the chairman. But U.S. Amateur champions were able to return to the Masters every year to play in the Par 3 contest. When did you first learn or did you know about that before you won the U.S. Amateur? Was that something that someone tapped you on the shoulder and said, hey, by the way, here's another little perk you get? Oh, I
1: have no idea when I learned of it. I don't think I knew about it uh, when I won the U.S. Amateur. I when I went to play in the two uh, master, Masters, I'm sure I ran into uh, Vinny Giles and others, um, and I'm, I'm sure I learned of it then. But um, you know, it, it was it, it's an honor to go back. <clears throat> um, I, I usually go over there on. Sunday night, I stay with one of my best friends in the world, Trip Kulke, who played for me at Georgia Southern. Um, I go in and I get my credentials on Monday morning, and then uh, Monday night is the amateur dinner. Right. So I go. I go to the amateur dinner on Monday night, um, and and usually we we stay until you know Thursday afternoon, and then drive home and watch it on TV because sure. you can see a whole, a whole of, lot more,
0: of course. Yeah,
1: but. Um, the answer to your question is is yes we used to uh, be able to play the practice rounds on monday tuesday and wednesday and also the par three tournament and they just stopped that about five years ago okay uh so in my younger days hell yeah i'm gonna play the practice <laughs> round i mean if you get to play augusta national you you play there anytime you can and um i would play with former players typically, or, uh, you know, just people that, that I knew pretty well. Uh, Jerry Pate used to, yeah. I used to play with Jerry all the time. Uh, we, you know, we're the exact same age. We played college golf at the same time. And, um, we, I, I played with Dudley Hart and Chris DeMarco and Camila Bajegas. And, but, you know, after, after they lengthened the course and, you know, I'm in the, uh, I'm in the yard and pound a year club. I lose a yard and gain a pound every year. (laughs) Okay. Uh, So, you know, about 10 years ago, I quit playing in the practice rounds just because like, man, I don't, I don't need to be out here. I get it, you know, 25 or 30 yards short of these guys. And uh, I don't have that big of ego. So, but, but I, but I played in the part three tournament every year until, uh, they told us that we could not, and and I am totally cool with what happened. I I get it completely. It's it's entertainment. Uh, you got a lot of kids that are hitting balls now. Uh, it takes a long time to play. They didn't want it to get to a point where I think the pros didn't want to play because it took so long, um, and you know it it made sense. I feel badly for the younger guys. Um, by the way, it's not just amateurs. It's also professionals like Ian Baker Finch, right, and Andy right. North, and Jerry Pate, as I mentioned earlier, and uh, Curtis Strange. Anybody that's won a major championship gets to come back as an honorary invitee. And for the younger guys uh, who didn't get to play in the Par 3 tournament for 30 years in a row, I feel, I feel kind of bad. But for me personally, I totally get it. I'm, I'm fine with it, and, you know, I – you know, I just am so thankful that I had the opportunities that I did have along the way.
0: I'm, I'm sure that there are several memories to pull on and I'm, uh, it's kind of an unfair question, but I mean, you're basically for several years doing a two to three day call <laughs> vacation at, at Augusta national Were there ever yeah. is there. I mean, that's, that's insane. I'm uh, That's, that's gotta be the coolest thing, but, um, can you maybe think of a round or a story with someone you played with just as like, can you believe I get to do this? And we're, we're here at Augusta and and playing, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in front of the the fans that are here for the practice round or maybe one of your favorite games that you played. I'm sure there's gotta be a, there's gotta be w- at least one story in there somewhere.
1: Well, there's, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know specifically on the big course I can remember playing a practice round with uh Mark Kakovecchia and and Ken Green, and I think it was Gary Koch, so it was all Gators. And, um, you know, Green and Calc were best friends, and they would gamble on anything. And they would, I mean, they would hit shots, and they would, you know, pay hey, $20, I can hit this shot within so-and-so or whatever. And and they're, they're literally crawling, crawling up on the little short tv stands to the right of the 13th green and chipping the ball off of the tv stand over the creek onto the green and okay. you know it was, just, it was just hilarious and and then of course you know i don't know who started it but um you know somewhere in there we started skipping the ball across the pond on 16 right to, to get it to go up on the green and i'm sure i had uh you know 30 or 40 tries at that and i, I do remember one time getting one to skip across there about two or three times and, and, and kicking up on the green. But um, I got a couple of pretty good part three stories in that in 87, when I was playing in the tournament, uh, I'm playing with Mike Donald who played for me at the Georgia Southern, one of my best friends again in the world today. And a, a guy that he was really close to at, at the time, Fred couples. So we're playing a threesome and <clears throat> And Azinger and uh, Green and Kalkovecchi had come up behind us, and they go like, "All right, well, let's let's play for twenty dollars a hole." I go like, and and I'm I'm going, you know, I ain't making a whole lot of money, so twenty dollars a hole is a lot. That's a big that's a big bet for me, you know. It's sure. chump change for these guys. So on number one, I hit it for I hit it about a foot from the hole, and it was closest to the hole at the time. And you know, you get crystal for closest to the hole. And on number two, I hit it about, uh, I hit it about six inches from the hole. So I start out birdie birdie for my $20 a hole. And uh, before I hit my tee shot, uh, Steve Elkington made a one on number one and Azinger made a one on number two. So not only do I not get any crystal on the $20 a hole thing, I'm already one down, you know, and I've gone two, two. Uh-huh. So, so, uh, that was one story that I remember. And then toward the end, one of the last years I played in the par three tournament with my son caddying and playing with Billy Horschel and Matt every, uh, I made a hole in one on number
0: two, which was pretty cool. There you go. And gets, and you got the, you got that crystal. Hopefully. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Actually, I, I got, I got crystal for close to the hole on number seven, one year, uh, you know, several, several years ago. I don't remember what year it was, but I stuck one in there kind of close.
0: Going back to your, your time at the University of Florida, uh, you know, two national championships. I've spoken to a lot of Gators and uh, I've spoken to some of your former players, did a little bit of research, got a, got a you know, thanks to Nick Gillum for putting us together. He uh, obviously part of that uh, 2001 championship season where he picked up the individual NCAA title and, uh, you know, spoken to Duke Butler and, and, Josh McCumber, and a couple other guys. And I've been told that there are, uh, there are some commandments that uh, you have, have communicated to your, to your team, uh, teammates, or team members, I should say, over the years at the University of Florida. And um, I'm wondering if these commandments would apply to listeners in their casual game, or are these just commandments that you had for being on the team? Can you explain a little bit about these, these commandments of golf that you have?
1: the funniest part about the commandments was that every time a a freshman would come in, he would go like, you know, coach, you've got 12 commandments and God only had 10, you know, what's (laughs) up with that. And I would, I would just go like, well, you know, golf can be a little more complicated than life. So, you know, that's why we might have to have 12.
0: Excellent. Good. Well said.
1: The, um, the commandments started in, at the NCAA tournament in New Mexico, which would have been 97 I think and um Brian Craig was the my assistant coach he's now the coach of Kentucky and I I'm just sitting there and I'm 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 just thinking to myself how many times am I going to have to to repeat the same thing over and over and over to guys about you know certain way to play shots and certain things to do like you know if you're if you're putting up a level on a putting green and it's a pretty significant uh, shelf or plateau 90% of the time, even a tour player will leave the ball short of except course. maybe at the it, it, it except maybe at Augusta national uh, where the greens are a little faster, but I just, so I just started to write things down that I was telling them over and over again. Some of them, you know, I stole from Rotella about, um, You know, conservative aim, cocky swing, um, you know, little just tidbits of golf about, you know, certain things that, that, you know, there, there were tips, they were helpful. They were things that helped them understand a certain situation a little bit better or be a little bit better player. And, you know, like I said, some of them were, uh, uh, sports psych type stuff. Some of them were about, you know, have the flagstick attended outside of 30 feet because your overall depth perception is way better. If there's a person standing next to the hole, as opposed to taking the flagstick out and just putting in a four and a quarter inch hole in the ground. Um, and that was something that I learned from my dad. I mean, that wasn't, that wasn't something that, you know, I came up with it was, it was something that had been passed down. So I just started to put all these things together and it happened to come out to about 12 of them. And so I put them on these little cards and I made them memorize them at the beginning of every year. And, uh, then I would quiz them on them, uh, uh, on, on occasion. And, um, it is, I mean, like if you go up to Billy Horschel at the next tour event that you see him and you ask him what first things first means, he will explain it to you and it will make a lot of sense to you from a golf standpoint. Uh, he will he will remember that. And, you know, it's funny that, that, that guys on tour now are leaving the flagstick in from outside of 30 feet a lot. Now, uh, I still get some really crazy looks when I play tournament golf and I've got a 50 footer and I go like, hey, would you attend the flag stick And don't forget, you still have to take it out. Right. Because, you know, some people might have forgotten what the rule is. But it, your depth perception is going to be better if there's somebody standing next to the hole. Um, and, and yet tour players where before they just automatically yank the flag stick out. A lot of them are leaving the flag stick in when they're outside of 30 feet now. And, um, uh, you know, they might not have realized why, but, uh, the depth perception thing is, is a good part of that. So the 12 commandments are just an accumulation of golf knowledge, put in a, a commandment, uh, mode so that they could remember them. And I wouldn't always have to remind them after they made the same mistake over and over and over. I just refer to the, hey, dude, number twelve today. That was Commandment number six. You messed it up.
0: <laughs> Who? If, I, I I hate to ask you to throw a player under the bus, but they they're they, they're probably doing pretty well if they're if you're going to mention their name. But can you think back of a player that was just? so good but still just could not get the commandments right and still would make the same bonehead mistakes over and over again but he still was so great I mean, probably had a lot of players like that I'm guessing
1: uh no no the commandments were pretty simple okay and i'm not gonna say that they that they didn't you know still of course uh, hey they are college up they're, on yeah, occasion they're, yeah they're college i kids. mean like like i had a i didn't have a lot of mandates as a coach um you know i i never told guys that they could or couldn't go for a par five and two or what have you. But my, my deal was like, I don't have any mandates until we go to the postseason. When we get to the postseason. If you haven't figured it out by now and you want to do something stupid, I'm going to make sure you don't do it. So I, I didn't, I really didn't have uh, a too big issue with, with most of these guys. And yes, they still butchered it. But one of the mandates that I had was you will have the flag stick attended, from outside of 30 feet. And every now and then I would catch a guy who would be about 40 feet away, and I'd be a couple fairways over, and I'd notice that he had the flag stick taken out. And I would say to him after the round, Hey, how long was that putt you had over there at number 12? Oh, that was 29 feet, coach. <laughs> you know? So, uh, I can, imagine, and, and,
0: yeah, I can imagine your team had a lot of 20, 29 footers in your, uh, in your day. Yeah, probably so.
1: Well, and this is another, another really funny story about it was Dudley Hart, when he won his first tour event on the last hole, had about a 50 footer and he took the flag stick out Ooh. and he rolled it up there about a foot from the hole and tapped it in and won by a stroke. And when I called him that night, I, I said something to him about having the flagstick attended. He said, Coach, I don't like to have the flagstick attended. You know that. And when I had that flag stick taken out on last hole, I know it was a 50-footer, but when I had it taken out on last hole, I'm walking around looking at that putt thinking to myself, I damn sure better two-putt this son of a bitch or Coach <laughs> is going to kill me.
0: <laughs> That's great. That's absolutely great. Oh my gosh! Um, uh, You mentioned it's fascinating. You mentioned the uh, what you're doing right now. You're mentioning the uh, consulting with uh, with junior golf and and consulting with uh, with uh, finding uh, you know with with consulting with programs. Is maybe is there? Can you maybe speak to some of the things you see that you really like, and maybe some some of the things that jump out that you're like, okay, that's going to need to get corrected if this program is going to succeed long term.
1: I mean, it's, sometimes it's pretty obvious. Sometimes it's little bitty things. Um, you know, like I remember going to to one one place, and they had this this beautiful building, and they had this giant room, and um, they had nice coaches' offices, and they had this really big closet between the coaches' offices. Um, you know, men on one side, women on the other, and they had the secretary sitting out in the middle of this big room, like no (laughs) privacy at all, nothing, just sitting out in this, in the middle of this room. And I, I, I looked at the coach and I go like, Hey, have you ever considered making that room, the secretary's office and finding other storage areas in this building, which is plenty big. And, um, you know, and, and making better use of this particular building. You don't have a conference room. Why don't you cut it in half and have a conference room where your teams can meet. And so, Oh my God, I never thought about that. Those are great ideas. And I mean, it didn't have anything to do with golf, but it had a lot to do uh, with the the sizzle. Like I said, a recruit comes in there and they go like, Oh my God, the secretary is out in the middle of this big old room, which is, Multi-purpose, and they're not even using it for anything. You know, I mean, it's just little things like that. It's called, like I said, it's called an audit. So um, now there, a lot of it has to do with their facilities. Some sometimes there's there's nothing you can do about it, and sometimes there is. Um, and uh, a lot of it has to do with how you run your program. Do you have structured practices, or do you just? are are you just one of these guys that has the qualifiers and basically, you know, lets the kids practice on their own every day and hope they get better. Um, You know, so all kinds of different ways to look at how to coach college golf. But, um, you know, I just, I wrote a book. I mean, I have a notebook that's about a hundred pages long and it goes over, you know, everything from player development to recruiting, to fundraising, to facilities, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, they pay me to come in there and talk to them about it and whether they take my advice or not, I don't know. Cause I, you know, I leave, but you know, and then they're welcome to call me back occasionally. And they do, a lot of them do. And, you know, I, I enjoy that. I don't do that that much anymore, to be honest with you, just because I'm not big on getting on an airplane anymore. And, not not just because of COVID. I mean, I'm just kind of tired of traveling, uh, and and I have a, I have a version of that where I can send them the notebook, and I'll spend a half a day on the phone with them and explain the entire notebook with them. Obviously, that's a lot cheaper. Uh, I don't get a lot of those, uh, but any program could afford it. Um, but I did about 20 of them where I actually visited the 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 the, the site of the school and. Um, I think most coaches got a lot out of it.
0: I will. uh, So let me just go ahead and close this out unless there's a, is there a story that I have not pivoted towards that, that you uh, is a go-to that you like to share? I don't want to leave anything out. If you had something you wanted to, wanted to throw in there. Well, you ask about the masters
1: and um, I guess that my, my favorite master story that I just kind of forgot about when we were talking about the masters was, um, the first round in 87, the U.S. AMA champ used to play with the de- defending Masters champion, which was Jack Nicklaus. Sure. And you just played a twosome. And um, we were. We we're standing on the tee, getting ready to play. We we're playing like at 1:30. It was hot. It was windy. The scoring was high. Sixty nine was low round of the day. Here I am. Getting ready to hit my first shot at the Masters with the greatest player that's ever played, and 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 arguably the greatest golf tournament that that there is. And um, he's getting, you know, they they call him to the tee, and you know, Jack Nicholas six-time Masters. I go like, you know, I'm just gonna turn around, and I'm not even gonna watch him hit. I'm just gonna, (laughs) just not gonna watch. Just turn around. So I turn around and. Pretend like I'm piddling around with something in my bag or whatever. Yeah, I could and as soon as he hits it, it's like, woo, woo, yeah, yeah. And then like total silence. And uh, they, uh, I don't know where it went, but I know it's not a good shot. And so I get up there and try to get my ball to stay on the tee. And uh, somehow, with the grace of God, I rip it as good as I got down the middle of the fairway. And we're walking down the fairway, and uh, we're just chit-chatting, and the caddies, just the two of us shoulder-to-shoulder, and and the caddies are up there about 15 yards ahead. And I see this accumulation of people way to the left, almost in the ninth fairway over in the trees over there. And when (laughs) we're walking along, and he says to me, he says, you know, buddy, I've been playing here for 27 years. And that's the worst tee shot that I have ever hit off of this tee. And I just, I looked over at him and I put my hand on his shoulder and I said, listen, Jack, I know, I know I can be a little bit intimidating to play with, but I think after three or four holes, you're going to be all right. <laughs> and he laughed and laughed and laughed and we had a great day. I can honestly say that um, he he's one of the, the greatest playing partners you would ever want to have in that situation. I mean, it almost, it literally, almost felt like he went out of his way to try to help me feel comfortable in what was obviously a, a an uncomfortable but incredible situation. Of
0: course, and
1: uh, he was he was terrific.
0: That's a great story to end on. Um, I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range and uh, and and get get geared up for that mixed uh, for that mixed tournament. Okay.
1: Sounds good. (laughs) Yeah, I'll do it. I appreciate it. Enjoyed it. And uh, anytime, happy to do it.
0: And there you have it. Special thanks to Buddy Alexander, former Walker Cupper, former U.S. Amateur champion and national championship coach at the University of Florida. Also thanks to Nick Gillum, one of my former guests, and uh, he played for Coach Alexander. So thanks to Nick for uh, helping put this one together. Don't forget, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every single episode, even Nick Gillum's, is available at the website, thebackoftherange.com. We'll see you again next time for another episode here at the Back of the Range.